lot of times people ask me, how do you find these people in your podcast? Well, in this particular case, I was writing a children's book, looking to publish it, and I talked to Molly Grantham, the anchor at WBTV, who had just published her most recent book, and she recommended an editor that I could hire named Betsy Thorpe. And so I called her up, and she was perfectly wonderful, and she helped me with Sophia Loves Tortillas. And she is not just an editor. She is also a writer, and she is in the middle of a three-book deal. So if you're ever curious about writing a book, editing a book, pitching a book, publishing a book, um, but also, more than that, just great storyteller. If you enjoy books, if you enjoy TV, film, if you enjoy stories, we talk about it going back to kind of geek out as a couple of English majors. But this is a story not, even if you're not a reader, it's just kind of fascinating. Uh, if you just love a good story, a good yarn. Here's Betsy. The plot has to be, you know, you can't stop reading. Or it's got to be innovative in a way that is kind of resetting what a novel looks like. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. Betsy Thorpe and I do not just discuss literature. We don't just sit around and talk about Chaucer. We begin by talking about this kind of hearing disorder that she has that's the same thing my daughter has. And people didn't think it was a real thing. Like when it drives you crazy, when people are crunching, when you can hear them eating. She has that, and my daughter has that, and so we immediately bond over that. Anywho, this is fun. It's a fun chat. Uh, enjoy Betsy Thorpe. Where were you born? Uh, Oceanside, New York. I don't know where that is. It's on Long Island. Oh, okay. Yeah. North Shore, South Shore? Uh, I don't even know. I guess it's on the South Shore. So hospital, home? Uh, hospital. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I was born on Christmas Eve. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Does that mean you get half the number of presents? No, my parents were good about that. That's wonderful. Yeah. As a little girl, your mom would have said, Betsy was so what? Angry. Angry? <laughs> As a little one, like two years old? Well, maybe four or five, I, the red hair really kicked in. Yeah, I have a redheaded temper. Um, I, was, I like to think I was a sweet little girl, but uh, yeah, apparently I was a little hellion, I think, for quite some time. Were you angry about something, or were you just like, People would piss you off. No, I mean, I wasn't. I was situationally angry. So I'm pretty mild-mannered. But I actually have this thing that they only just figured out what it was. I, um, it's called dysphonia, I think it's called. And that is when people chew, it drives you insane. So if, like, you know, the people snapping bubblegum or popcorn or just loud chewers who keep their mouths open... And that was, that was my family. So family dinner time was excruciating for me. 
And I'm so glad that it's been classified as something that other people go through because we took, um, my mom took me to a special hearing doctor. We thought I had super sensitive hearing. I mean, we did all the tests because it drove me bonkers to, it still does. Not as badly because I think I've lost some of my hearing, like loud concerts and stuff, but. Now see, my daughter has this. Oh, she does. My youngest. And I thought it was me um, because she would sit kind of near me at the dinner table. Uh And then there were years in which she and her brother were. Switch places. No, with with just the two of them Uh instead of four. Right. And to this day, if I'm eating particularly something like chips or crunchy. Yes. It doesn't matter how far away from her I am. So did they just say, Betsy. Get it together. Yeah. Come on. Sit here at the dinner table until we're done. And I would cover up my ears and I would try to like, you know, try to sit in such a way that I couldn't hear it. And, you know, my dad was the loudest chewer. I still sit further away from him because he's the loudest chewer. And so how old were you when you learned they actually have a name for this? Oh, my gosh. It was only in the last five years, I think, five or seven years. And then my neighbor across the street said, I have it and her sons have it. And so many people, when I posted that on Facebook, like, this is a real thing. This is a syndrome. And I've been experiencing this my whole life. Like, going to the movies can be torture for me because of all the popcorn. So sometimes I've gotten up to move, you know, if they're really heavy popcorn eaters around me. A lot of the movies are so loud now. Now they're so loud, it's not as much of a problem. But back in the day, like before they would play all those trailers for endless, you know, 45 minutes before the movie started, and I would sit next to somebody who was just chewing popcorn, it would drive me insane. Yeah. So since you know that this is a real thing, Mm -hmm. um, other than move away from people, what kinds of things do you do uh, to sort of like, self-accommodate like nobody's going to accommodate for you in a restaurant so how do you restaurants not really a problem because it's more these kind of you know family dinners um things like that so we actually i'm afraid to say but i'm i'm the mom who allows tv in the background during dinner time so it'll drown it out Mm -hmm. yep well that's smart yeah i mean my kids didn't used to drive me crazy Um, But (laughs) Lucy will come in and if she sees that I'm working and she's getting up late and she's grabbing a bowl of cereal or something, she will literally hand me my headphones, my AirPods, so I can turn on some white noise. Do you turn on white noise Mm -hmm. or? Yeah, just white noise. Now they have all kinds of things that you can play. They have, you know, like oral stimulation. Oh, yeah. No, I just listen to my little white noise app. Yeah. So. And what does it sound like? It's there's like six or seven different things. It just sounds like I don't know, like an industrial noise, almost like engines or like a loud AC unit. What I'm wondering is, is there a sound which is the opposite of chewing, like like a soothing noise? Yes. Um. You know, kids sleep, you know, somebody sleeping is very soothing. Not snoring, Not but... Not snoring, 
gently, you know, gently, maybe even a gentle snore, but um, just a, you know, calm breathing, my dog breathing, um, white, the, just the white noise of an AC unit or a fan. Okay, what's a place? It could be mountain stream, it could be wind in the pines, it could be ocean. Uh-huh, ocean noises are great. On the flip side, storytellers. Are there some storytellers that you could like, oh, I could listen to that person all the time. They're just such a good storyteller. I mean, not reading their stories, but really just sort of telling them. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say David Sedaris is a great. He is, yeah. and that's a it's that's an example of where he he writes it in such a way, right. but then when he tells it, it's almost like there's a spontaneity yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, he's just very good at, at reading aloud his own stories. I guess they're pretty conversational, so maybe that's it. But I'm I'm not I'm coming up blank on other. Good but I mean, he's a definite art form. Yeah. I mean, I like people on the like the talk show circuit who are really good at telling stories, like Martin Short or somebody yeah. like that. He's just, you know, they're just, there's some great, like Tom Hanks is a great storyteller. All those people who can just, you know, last minute phone call, can you come because the other person canceled and they'll just have 10 great stories in their back pocket. And that always impresses me because I feel like, I mean, I don't have that skill set. <laughs> well, but we'll talk about your skill set. Mm -hmm. In high school, you were what? Like, what, what, what would they remember you for? What, what are you in the high school yearbook? <laughs> Hiding behind any available column, <laughs> trying not to get noticed. So you were very shy. I was very shy. I, was I think I had been very bold as a, you know, it's that classic, once puberty hits or something, you just and you hit the mean girls of middle school and all of that, I just lost all of my confidence. Um, so I was very outgoing and very sassy and very, um, very confident. And I was always confident of my um, intellect and my ability to do, you know, do well Good in grades. school. Great grades. But it was kind of like once I had to navigate the mean hallways of middle school and high school, I kind of thought I'm just gonna hide until I get the heck out of here, and then, you know, and hopefully survive unscathed. That did was you my go strategy. to the prom? Mm -mm, no. You did not go to the prom. No, no. Like no one asked you, and you asked no one. One person asked me, and I did not want to go with him. So, yeah. So you said no. I said no, and my best friend and I, twice, um, did not go, and we went and had a fancy dinner. Oh, the two of you. <laughs> yeah. What classes, high school, et cetera, did you really enjoy? Like you would have taken them as an elective. Definitely English and history. What part of English did you like? Um, well, I had this fantastic teacher, Mr. Kroll, I think was his name. Um, and he was the one who introduced me to Middle English literature, or us as a class. And he was... So Middle English, are we talking about Chaucer? Chaucer. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, was talking about the Anglo-Saxon, uh, the swearing, you know, which is a great way to a young teenager's heart is to, you know, talk. There are about... fart jokes in Chaucer. <laughs> yes, there's there's sex, there's swearing, there's all sorts of political commentary. So um, 
I love that. And then he, he made us, I believe, learn the first 16 lines of the Canterbury Tales prologue. One that um, April with the shore, it's yes, like the, exactly. the draft of March that passed it to Bagarata. And, and switch liqueur, of which they're gendered is the floor. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I loved that, and he, he kind of got me set on that path, which I ended up getting my master's in Middle English. So Well, it's learning a second language. It is, and it's somewhat connected to modern English, but it's fascinating, the old English joining with French um, and and what happened and none of it was standardized it was all you know it was all done and there were some on the on the pilgrimage there were some empowered women correct yes there was the wife's the wife of Bath who's the very body one and then there's I think some sort of the some sort of priestess some sort of nun something or other and at, they were all empowered, which I enjoyed. The squire was cool, and he did like a courtly love romance. And I also got, you know, reading C.S. Lewis and other people. Um, uh, Tolkien talked about a lot about courtly love in medi medieval literature. But no one was saying fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> At least not in your high school. No, no. It was I, a different era. It was a different, yeah. No, we weren't doing that. We, um, I mean, it was, it was a politically active time. I think, kind of the late '80s. Um, what did that look like, though? I'm trying to think back. I mean, we. I, I know talking about drinking that we had. Um, we had formed um, safe rides out ah. of. A, I think we were the first chapter of Safe Rides out of a response to, I think, five or six kids getting killed in our small town of 20,000 wow. people, um, you know, drunk driving accidents. And... Now, see, I would call that socially active. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, I guess, nobody, you know, I don't remember, I certainly didn't campaign, but I had very de definite political views. I mean, very early on, I remember my grandmother crying as Nixon got on the helicopter and, you know, I was just a little girl and she and my step-grandfather were just crying when he, you know, when he got, when he resigned. And, um, and because I, they, they loved him. They didn't want him to, to step down. And I was like, yeah. And, um, and your reaction was? I, I really didn't know at that point. I was too young. But then when Reagan came onto the scene, I, and I know people just, you know, this is a very unpopular view because so many. Well, it depends on where you are. Yeah, it depends on where you are. But he was, I, you know, my hometown, which is Darien, Connecticut, which is where I moved when I was three. Um, was very like a corporate town and being oh, sure. a Republican, you know, with small government and keep keep out of no regulations and things like that. That was the thing to be. And um, well, wasn't Lieberman Joe Lieberman? Joe from... Lieberman is Connecticut, yeah. And so Lieberman's a Democrat, but he was a very religious man. Mm -hmm. And then there were also uh, Lowell Weicker yeah. going way Governor, back. Yeah. And so you had, like, um, people who were, these were not 
Trumpers. These were not no, the arch they're, conservatives. They're These were what they would call now rhinos, right? So right. they're. Um, but I mean, there was something they called a Rockefeller Republican exactly. or a Country Club Republican. Exactly. That's that's what I grew up with. Um, more of the fiscally conservative, uh, you know, socially moderate people who were, you know, relatively progressive in the social ways, but definitely conservative fiscally. Yeah. So um, when Reagan came out, I was just like, that's, that's not my guy. So yeah, so I was, you know, pretty much not a, a Republican ever. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Where'd you go to college? What'd you do at 18? Uh, I went to Mount Holyoke College, which is up in, uh, it's an all-women's college in Massachusetts. It's, is it one of the Seven Sisters? It's one of the Seven Sisters. It's the oldest women's college in America. It was founded in 1837. Why did you decide to go there? Uh, my mom had gone there. Oh, your legacy. Yes. And she was from Northern Michigan, is from Northern Michigan, and is was I grew up in a tiny town and read the entire library. And she was just smart as a whip and scored perfect on her ACTs. And um, and I think somebody somehow said, you should go to Smith and Ron Holyoke. And she liked Mount Holyoke better. And there was no way I was going to Mount Holyoke. I was like, I wanna be in a co-ed environment. This is gonna be, you know, woohoo, and just have a load of fun. And my dad had gone to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Small with, school. A small school. Um, when he had gone there, it was a, a men-only college or a boys' school, as we said. And um, so I, along with other schools I was considering, I got invited to both uh, alumni, alumni daughter weekends of accepted students and I went to Trinity and I think it was like a Wednesday and everybody was sauced out of their minds <laughs> and like I was like hello you know anybody want to show me around campus or you know there was none of that I went to Mount Holyoke I met the smartest most kind women who are interested in me and fascinated in all these subjects and diverse and I was like and the campus was stunning and I was like all right I'll, I'm going here. I'm going to really enjoy it. And then I went abroad for a year. Um, Where? To London. Uh -huh. To King's College London. Oh, my word. Yeah. yeah. So. Get to go to the mother, to the <laughs> homeland. <laughs> yeah. And I got, and then I ended up going back when I met my future ex-husband and um, got my master's degree in Middle English. Oh, my word. Yeah. yeah. You were in. Yeah. You were in deep. Well, I, I had met this professor, again, I took Middle English, and her name was Jane Roberts, and she's still emeritus there. and um, Still alive. Yeah, still alive, and oh my goodness, you know, she, she, was, she was old enough to, I think at that point, to have known Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis, and oh my all word. the, you know, all the old school um, medievalists, um, and it was just, it was a neat time. So I got in with her program when I had met my future ex-husband in New York, um, and I said, you know, could I do this master's, and it's only a year program. So I got, I got my MA, and I got Oh my, my word, you're yeah. talking to people, I mean, it's one thing to be 
like Stephen Colbert, totally in the tank right. for talking, you right. know, like just every little bit of every film of right. every, and it's quite another to know the man. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm interested in the history of Tolkien more than I'm interested right. in, the, yeah. in The Hobbit. I mean, and I love the movies. Gollum and yes, all those. I love the movies, but I just didn't, yeah. I, and I'm a very, I'm a, because I went into editorial, if I don't like it in the first 10 pages, I'm not going to keep reading. So yeah. I, still, I still have it on my shelves because I'm like, there's a time and a place almost for every book, for every person, but that, that time and place was not whenever I picked that up. What's on your bedside table right now? Well, how do you read? Do you read, um, like, do you have a separate book for the bathroom, the bedroom, and the, <laughs> <laughs> or do you read one book which migrates with you? I or, don't. Or are you reading five? I'm reading five, yeah, five at a time. Okay, basically. so where are you on the Kindle? Do you ever read on the iPad or the Kindle? What I do with the Kindle is I will, when they have that, you know, try a sample. Yeah. And I'll try a sample and download it to my Kindle. And if I like it, then I'll order, if I think I'm 99, 95% of all books, I'll get hard copies of because- You will buy them. Yes. Because- You're not a library person? I wish I could be a library person, but because I've got my full-time day job and then I'm writing at night, I have about 15 minutes for my pleasure reading every night, which is not enough. So it won't get me a library book finished in two or three weeks. So I have to buy them. Plus- You could renew it. I could too. renew it, yes. I mean, I try, but it's just, and I'm also very much like, um, like I'm a detective and I'm trying to find the perfect, the perfect start to a book or the perfect, so I'm always like, you know, I'm easily distracted when it comes to new books and I'll be like, oh, oh, that book sounds really amazing. I have to get that and I just want to peek at it. And then all of the other books that I was engaged in um, kind of get left to the side. So I'm kind Occasionally of- Occasionally you, like people are doing such clever and just kind of amazing stuff and yeah. sometimes too clever by half, but sometimes when they do it, it's like, wow, that is really- Yes, the last, the, a few ones that I've been impressed with um, is a man called Ove, mm -hmm. O-V-E. Sure, I think that it's was a bestseller. Oof, um, right. By, um, Turned it into a film. Frederick Blackman, a couple films, yeah. Um, and that was super clever because you had a horrible, horribly, um, not a great, protagonist like he's not somebody that you would want to hang out with he's very cantankerous and how do you make a reader stay engaged with somebody that you completely disagree with everything that he's doing right <laughs> so he's going around he's harassing all of his neighbors like yeah. the hoa guy and he's saying you didn't put out your bins at the right time you didn't put them away at the right he's, time and he's not the lovable grouch he's, not, he's an unlovable right. grouch and how do you make the steps to not only get him to be a kinder person, but also so that you learn his backstory. How did he get to be so mean and so grouchy? And that was genius for me. Yeah, Pure that's genius. smart. Yeah. So what are you reading now? 
what the heck am I reading now? Oh my gosh, I'm going to blank out. I, I'm reading two books. Uh, Novels? You read? No, well, I'm reading a, a novel. What, is, what am I reading? I'm reading just a very commercial fiction book called Beach Read ah. by Emily Henry right yeah. now. Um, it's kind of a... And is it a beach read? Is it a fun kind of a... It's fun. And what I like about it is it's about two writers. Um, and she, they kind of challenge each other to write a book that is not in their genre. Yeah. So she's kind of a romance gal and he's kind of a, you know, literary fiction, you know, the world is over and I'm just going to roll in the angst type thing. And then they exchange their genres and they try to write the others. And I just love the banter going back and forth because they both have the kind of same passion. They can invent stories kind of on the go. And, and I think that's really fun. I'm reading a biography of Henry VIII and a biography of Leonardo da Vinci. Just and how did you find those? Um, it's for the book that I'm working on right now. So um, So your book is nonfiction? My book is... Historical fiction. It's historical fiction slash romance slash time travel. <laughs> so it's That's a good combo. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good combo. It's, it's, it's been done, but it's not overdone. And... It's probably the closest... I mean, I would say I was initially inspired by kind of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by yeah. Lewis. Um, of you know going into another world, but it's not fantasy; it's his history. So, um, well, what is the series? It's, it's got all the dreamy McDreamer some on it. Uh, that my wife and all the women. It's Outlander. Uh, Outlander. Oh, my, she's totally in the tank. My I've lost my wife to Outlander. I, my book is very is similar to Outlander, but I say without the all the rape and the violence. Ah. Because that turns me off. I decided at a certain point when I got divorced that I was going to write to entertain people and yes. take them away from their troubles. And so that I don't want to just heap on more stuff. I want to raise the tension and make it exciting, but I don't, I don't want to have torture scenes. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. I skipped over, how did you get from uh, Middle English <laughs> Chaucer scholar right. to uh, book editor, book writer, author? How did you right. make that leap? Right. Well, I first started in magazine publishing was my first year out of college. What magazine? Um, at the Condé Nast um, publication. So they own... Vogue and Vanity Fair. And, They're the big guys. Yeah, Connie Nast Traveler and uh, Self and Glamour and Details Magazine was like a, a men's magazine for a while. And, um, so I was... Were on, you in New York? Yeah, I was in New York. Oh, New how York. exciting. Yeah, I, was in, I mean, I grew up outside New York and then I got a got an apartment with some friends and... Um, and they paid me $18,000 a year. <laughs> and I think I was able to have, like I couldn't afford the sandwiches. So um, I think I had a candy bar and, and 
some chips for lunch. That was my, that was my. What candy bar? Uh, Milky Way. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's substantive. Yes, it's got caramel in it. So, <laughs> um, so I I did that, and I was on the rover program. So I was filling in for people um, if they, you know, if somebody left for a week to go on vacation, or if that position was vacated and they needed to hire somebody. So I worked at all the magazines and um, really enjoyed it and did a variety of jobs. But I knew after a year um, that it was not right for me. That You're not I able to write. I, I realized that all the the writing, except for say captions or whatever, were done by freelancers. Hmm. So um, yeah, and I was a lot of a lot of it's recycled and just I'm not that interested in beauty and fashion. I really I was interested in becoming a, a travel writer, but it just it didn't happen. And I also worked at the Condé Nast General Library, and people were writing books and like fashion histories and other things like that. There's a couple, a few famous people in there, but they had this great service for readers. So let's say you're going to San Francisco, and you call up and say, "Hey, I'm going to San Francisco. I need some recommendations on places to stay, wineries, restaurants, and." little, you know, 22-year-old me would go and just research the last six years of article, every article that there was about San Francisco and come up with a list and then was, I guess I sent it to people or I guess I made copies. That's great. Yes. That's better than AAA. That's better than... <laughs> yeah, it was really neat and just people were so appreciative and then we sat outside the testing kitchen. Oh, so, fun. Oh, Did you get to sample it? Oh, all? yeah. Oh, they, that's every wonderful. day they bring out something. Well, enough with the Milky Ways here, Betsy. Yeah, you can, <laughs> that's, 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 you can that's just game that some, system. That's when I had some proper food, yeah. So that was, I mean, it'd be like a whole bunch of donuts or something, but it wasn't, uh. it wasn't a three-course meal, but it was really, really fabulous. So I, I just love that. I almost worked at the New Yorker. Oh, my word. Yeah, so when I came back from England with my master's degree and I had that experience at Condé Nast, I was already in as part of the Condé Nast empire. So I came back and I got an interview with Human Resources and they said, I was really hoping to be part of the, the fact-checking department because that's where you get a leg up and you can start to write some talk of the towns potentially and yeah. do things like that. The job they offered me was in, again, in the library. And it was not even like doing research for the writers or anything interesting like that. It was the guy, I went down and he, I think he must have been on the spectrum because he, he couldn't, he couldn't look in my eyes. All the best librarians are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't look in my eyes. And he, so he was like, well, the job is you summarize you read the article, you summarize it, you put it on this index card, and then you file it. And so. And then no one ever reads and then, it. Yeah, and I was like, what? <laughs> Out of this whole great. I bet they place, don't have that job anymore. I don't think so. I don't think so. So, I mean, it would be useful for coming up with log lines. So, you didn't want to get in the doors of the New Yorker that badly? Not that badly. No, right. not be stuck in this basement. You the know. New Yorker is epic. It's yeah. legendary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really cool. And I had worked um, at Condé Nast for Tina Brown. I was her second assistant, kind of like 
the second assistant at. Um, oh, so you so knew her a little I bit. I knew her a little bit, yeah, enough to like you know, and her she's married to Harry Evans, who um, was a big time editor at Random House, um, and so yeah, she had little kids at that point. And, so you got along with her? Oh yeah, she was delightful. Yeah. Totally delightful. Um, so that was kind of the... She's writing about the royalty. Now. Yeah, She's about the... I know. I'm like, I know she did all that for the Today Show, but I, I feel like it's kind of beneath her. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, people are absolutely riveted. Yeah, I am too. So what was your break? Might not have been a big break. What was your break? Um, well, I got into book publishing... Um, for? For Athenaeum, which was, um, I think one of the Canops had founded it after they had founded their own imprint. They, one of the sons, I think, had gone and founded that imprint. And I, um, it was part of Scribner at the time. And anyway, I just was, you know, was just a little editorial assistant answering phones. But I walked in, um, he was the sweetest guy, my boss, Lee Gurner, and um, he must not have had uh, an assistant for, for weeks and weeks because I walked in and he had stacks of manuscripts back when they used to submit hard cup copies um, ready for rejection. And my whole first day was rejecting manuscripts and stuffing them into jiffy bags and getting them sent back. And Did you have to write? I, he would give me a little squib on why he was rejecting it, and so that's when I. So came. at least they got the. Yeah, they got a letter, and it was I would he would you, sign. Them oh, all. he signed it. He signed it to make sure I didn't you know screw it up, but um, yeah, so that's where and I did, learned. The did language. all those rejected authors know that it was you? That, <laughs> he was that actually. Them. <laughs> It's you are the one who twisted the yeah, knife. Yeah, well, I became the early reader for a lot that weren't, let's say there was a lesser literary agent turning something in, and I would be like the first reader, and I would give him a little book report and whether I thought it was worth him taking a look at or let's pass. So i got to ask, selfishly, what did you learn about how to at least sort of make it past that first pass. Was there like a common thread? There's something you noticed? Well, we were talking about the excitement factor, right? And the, and like of a man called Ufa. Um, right. And how that was so clever and so innovative. And that stands out. So there's a lot of really good writers out there, but they're not excellent writers. So we got a lot of really good, competent writers, but the quote unquote was, it's too small. So the, the whole premise of it. Well, I don't know what that means. Too small is like, oh, you know, it might be about a hometown and something happens in the hometown and the protagonist goes back and resolves some issues and then the book is over. Um, there's not enough either excitement factor in the writing to elevate it to a certain level or there's not enough plot to make it appealing to a vast group of people 
or you know so there's got to be a, a combination in there some somewhere either the writing has got to be sublime where every sentence makes your jaw drop or the plot has to be you know like a grisham like so you know you can't stop reading or it's got to be innovative in a way that is kind of resetting um what a novel looks like so like a james joyce type of thing so he was doing more literary fiction um and he did some like charles johnson and reynolds price and just a uh, an uh, we we did an early one of hillary mantel's earliest books um called a place of greater safety about the french revolution so we did a lot of that and we did narrative nonfiction too um, but he was very high end, very, you know, those books weren't going to sell more than two to 3,000 copies in their lifetimes. Um, which, two to 3,000? Yes. Yes. And so they would still do it? They would still do it. They wouldn't get a big advance, but they'd still do it. But that's kind of the prestige publishing that they're going to win awards, like Middle Passage won a Pulitzer or something. So... Um, Fact, so it brought a kind of aura or halo right. to it's, the publishing house. Yeah, it's kind of like Knopf is, which is the highest um, level at Random House. So they're going to win all the prizes. And maybe, but you'll find like a lot of the National Book Award winners, their, you know, their first print is 750 copies maybe. So when they win, they've got to scramble to get their orders up because... You know, nobody has, has it's might have been well reviewed, but it's not going to be noticed by the general population because it's too literary. So then it kind of gets noticed, and even then it won't sell as well. You're also, you're describing a particular point in history. You're describing a world that does not exist Correct. anymore. It's, it's almost like, wow, you know, this was pre-Amazon. You know, this was yes. before Amazon, like completely, and this was before Kindle. This was before eBooks, digital books. This was like, this was 92. And so we had, you know, we had manuscript boxes instead of digital submissions. We just got email. You know, I got email at that company. That was exciting when I could email my friend down Does the your hall. daughter go, Mom? Yeah. <laughs> did you also date a caveman? Right. And <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And then Amazon, I think, started kind of in the in the late nineties. Yeah. Um, and and ever, what was the attitude? The of... attitude was, I mean, already you know, chain booksellers were were going down the toilet. So people were really scared about that, and you know, for good reason. And we lost. You know, Barnes and Noble, a lot of the Barnes and Nobles are, are slimming down and, and things like that. Luckily, they've been able to hang on. But when you discount at such a vast degree, you really have to love your bookseller in order to continue to support them because you're paying sometimes, you know, five or six dollars more per book than you would on Amazon. So now the flip side, I still hold out hope is that there are people who go directly to Amazon and try to find a toehold. So you don't need an agent. You don't need a New York oh, publishing absolutely. house. And you that's, can... that's been the other major inter innovation besides, you know, digital, um, digital 
printing and things like that is um, well or you know digital submissions is uh, is print-on-demand publishing and digital publishing so you know the old days of laying out type on the on the printer and just typing everything and then getting blues and things like that I mean I was there for that and then you know things started to develop and they had this lightning source press which Ingram spark later bought or it was part of them I'm not quite sure of the order but um, we started doing smaller print runs on that because back in the day we had warehouses full of books right so you do a first printing of let's say 2,000 depending on who it is or 20,000 and the books all get shipped out to bookstores and maybe there's a few hundred in reserve and then the a lot of people don't know that books get returned so uh, you know unlike, and they don't know the whole economics of yes. that of who gets paid and right so who the books, does not right so the books get returned um to the warehouse and so um or the book's not selling enough so that you have to make a decision do we do another small print run for the 100 books that we're going to sell this year at a cost of x or do we just say that it's out of print so with print on demand publishing where that you just load a pdf up into ingram spark or you make that sound Amazon. so easy betsy well i know it's i know it's just a pdf <laughs> it's just my blood sweated tears betsy it's just my soul i know i know well when it is a simple file though when it's finally boiled <laughs> down to it so you upload the pdfs of, of the interior and the jacket i'm not having gutenberg yes labor all night <laughs> grinding out, that yes. <laughs> right and painstakingly with the eyepiece nobody's got hot type coming no. in <laughs> like we gotta make space so no it's um yeah so it's no book need ever be out of print again in the history of mankind so yes. you can claim your real estate on amazon you don't you can make your own imprint you don't need random house you don't need penguin you don't need simon schuster the the always a difficult thing even with your great literary fiction published by one of the top publishers in the in the country is how do you get people a to hear about it and b to care enough to pick up a copy right the world's a big place and the internet allows you to find the one person in every tiny town who cares about that right. and put them together. Well, what recently has been happening is this um, book talk on TikTok. Again, I'll talk oh, about TikTok. Yeah. So, you know, the, the booksellers or, you know, some avid readers will say, these are the books that made me cry and, you know, whatever, in some sort of category like that. Or what is the a book? The so-called influencers? Yeah. Is that well, they're they were just regular gals um, who just loved to read and they just made these videos and they're so now they're influencers but they just made a compelling TikTok that people thought oh I want to read that book now that she told me that this is gonna make me cry which again is not what I'm interested in doing I I want to entertain people but um, so yeah well, so crying is entertainment for well, some people yeah some people just want to just have the big emotions or you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna um, be anti that so yeah so that's become a way to let people know about books that they might not otherwise know about um, which is great which is yeah. great but I just fear you know a lot of people they they talk constantly about 
the books that are on the bestseller list and they never divert from that or Reese's book club or you know whatever Oprah's book club and and they'll just stick with that and they you know it's so frustrating to the rest of us in publishing it's like please branch out from the bestseller list and but there is um formulaic cliche there's a kind of sameness mm -hmm. uh, and there's a tendency of people to chase that as opposed to innovating evolving yeah and i think a lot of people are very um connected with authors that they like um like grisham or janet ivanovich or something and they will just brandon sanderson they'll just read whatever it is that they um that they write and um the truth of the matter is the more popular you get the more powerful you become <laughs> <laughs> and the less you listen to your editor. So a lot of people's works fall, start falling apart, especially once they get on that, you must produce a book a year. Um, so let's say, you know, with me, it might've taken six years for me to get my first book written. Well, that's because I was, you know, a single mom and I'm doing a full-time job. And what I'm was that this. book? This is the book that actually was my first time travel romance book, which just got acquired but it got acquired as part of a three book deal so i'm now in the midst of writing two books in a year <laughs> for their deadline so yikes yeah so it's gone a huge distance so how many hours a day do you write um between one and two i'd say not and very long what time of day night i'm not a morning person what time of night um i usually go upstairs after watching some tv about 9 30 and then right maybe 9 30 to 11 11 30 12 depends. and do you like smoke a lot of weed no. or... <laughs> <laughs> what works for you have a glass of wine no 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 you just sit down and, and i just sit down and and do it like it's my homework yeah it's like well that sounds terribly unromantic it's very unromantic it's very like yeah you have homework for i literally have homework until january when the third book is due but it's also something you're clearly passionate about. I it's... love it. I love my characters. I love the learning about the the you know the history of the time and trying to come up with a solution. And because I've been writing really on the fly with this second book, which was so unlike the other books that I'd written, was um, it's very freeing. So I'm just writing whatever the heck comes into the top of my head and just getting it down on the paper. And then the second draft is all about cleaning it up and seeing whether any of it makes sense or I need to change it or whatever. But it's, it's pretty freeing. It's a pretty good way to write. And I really had a good voice in my head for this second book, so. Is there a way of making the muse visit? Is there? Kind yeah, of... you walk away from the computer. <laughs> that's that's usually when when she visits. But yeah, so there's. And so, do you find yourself ever out taking a walk in the woods, and all of a sudden you carry uh -huh. a what? Do you talk into your phone? You can or... talk into your phone. Write a write a, a note to yourself. Um, I often find while I'm driving or taking a shower, something like that. Just walking away from the computer and letting it mull over in your mind is really a great way. Or sometimes you could be watching a TV show and see a character that inspires you or hear a line of dialogue or something like that, and that sets me off. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun.
It is fun. Yeah. It's a neat kind of thing. Yeah. Do you have hope for um, a literate culture? I mean, do you think we are moving forward, backward? The numbers are holding up like recently as far as readership is concerned. Like how about your daughters? My daughters, well, they are kind of selective readers. My older daughter doesn't read as much as I would like to, but when she finds something that she likes, she'll read it like in a couple days. Um, and Lucy is a better reader, but um, you know, she will read a book in two hours. You know, say, let's say I used to take, say, 30 pages before I would reject a book or longer. But um, the writing style has evolved so much. So if you go back and you read Jane Eyre, um, there are 30 pages of descriptions before she gets, <laughs> you know, she gets to Rochester's house. Or, or even longer because first she goes, she's in the school and whatnot. So it's, t but just, you know, she's going through the Dales or whatever and it takes forever because people didn't have the cameras. They didn't know what that part of the country looked like. So she was using all of the words to describe exactly what it looked like. Now we don't have to do that. We can, through the beauty of all the film that's been done and internet and whatever, you can just Google what it's like on any one street and you can see a view of it. So I think a lot of that is being, it, there's not as much descriptions as there used to be. And so you've got to get to the plot sooner. That argues for the small story, the Definitely. small film, the and, linear and story. character building like um, Coda was a great example of a small movie that's set in a town with very specific characters that we might not have been knowledgeable about a child of the of deaf adults you know and what that world is like and what the fishing world is like and marblehead or wherever it was set um you know it's a very it's a very real place that they were able to build in an hour and a half but could there could have been so much more in that world what, what I loved about that film was, at the end of the day, it's about um, parents seeing their daughter as a, her own person. It's right. about sort of giving her her freedom, giving her her... Separating, Right, yeah. that separation, mm -hmm. which is universal. Right, which every family has to go through, and, hopefully uh, will go through. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little piece of digital audio, uh, what is your legacy? Oh, I'd like to think it's all the books that I helped bring into the world. Um, and my two daughters, who I'm very proud of. So yes, it's always, it's always been my aim to, to help authors get their books out in the best, at the highest level that they can attain, um, given their deadlines. But, um, yeah, I'm very proud of all the books, and I like to think that there's just ripple effects coming out from each one of those books and all the varied aspects of, you know, from health books and parenting books to fiction and children's books. And, and um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of the authors for, you know, seeing their work through and being dedicated and persistent and resilient 
it's it's quite a process as you know it's not you know it's not for wimps <laughs> well i want to thank you for the work that you did in helping yeah. me with my children's book it was a pleasure and um i really appreciate that it was you were tremendously helpful and it's a very simple story there were very few words right. but you were able to you know make it much more professional Thank you for making time. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. This was fun. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot of fun for me, too. Yeah. I'm hugely grateful to Betsy Thorpe for making time out of her writing, editing, reading, mothering responsibilities to take time to talk to me. Um, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to change names, program note, um, after two and a half years. Um, we won't be manlistening per se, it'll be a manlistening.com production, but we're changing names to In Her Words, In Her Words, which kind of more accurately reflects that it's not all about the man, it's really about the stories. Hope you like it. Thanks so much. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening and now in the transition to In Her Words from the very beginning. Thanks so very much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks. <laughs>